Good evening, y'all. Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Uh, I'm Brian Ball, and he, Jay Strother and I co-teach uh, co-teach the class tonight. Glad to have you here. You showed up after the first night of teaching of systematic theology, so it's very impressive that you're back. Um, also, it, it was Eric, Eric. Eric brought us coffee. If you notice, this is our first night in ten years of Coffee House Theology. I would also like to I'd also like to announce we're renaming to Steakhouse Theology. So, if anybody. As a grill, yeah, we can kind of tailgate. Um, and I, attendance, I'll come twice. I mean, if you're, you're giving me steaks. Anyway, um, well, thank you all for being here. We're going to continue our study of the theology of the word. I go through its authority, and, and it's, this is a, a tremendous night. If you haven't been here before, we, we take questions on Slido. And so if you want to get on a device, you can either take a picture of the, of the QR code, or you can go to slido.com. Our room number is 167 182, and you can ask questions. You can also look at questions that have been asked and like them, and so that will put them toward the top, so we'll know more people are interested in those questions, so we'll get, get to them. They'll have a higher priority. And um, other than that, I think we're we, we good. Fantastic. Let's pray. This is going to be a fabulous night. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful for your word, Father. Uh, thankful that we have truth, that we have truth, Father, that we can read and study and know Christ more. Because that's, that's what, right, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so this truth, right, this word, he is the word incarnate. And so, Father, let us, let us see more clearly uh, what your word is and how important your word is and what authority your word carries. And let that change us. Let us be different people that walk out of here than came in because we've had an encounter with truth, because we've had an encounter with Christ. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Well, thank you, Brian, and welcome. Thank you guys for coming out in the cold tonight. So that coffee is perfect uh, to get you warm, keep you caffeinated. I expect you guys to pay the best attention you ever have. Uh, so, but uh, it is an honor to have you guys. And I see a few new faces tonight, which is great. I know choir isn't meeting tonight as well. So some of you guys have snuck in. Welcome. Uh, glad you're here. If you're new, just kind of want to remind you what we're about. Um, years ago, when I was a youth pastor, it felt the real conviction to, to teach some deeper theology to students, but wanted to do it in a conversational setting. Uh, and so we actually did it in a coffee shop, and so hence the name Coffee House Theology. Uh, and so when we started Station Hill, one of the same opportunity. I love to preach, but I love to teach as well. Uh, and so we've covered a lot of topics over the years. We kind of pick things year by year and semester by semester. This is actually our 10th year of teaching. And so I told Brian, I kind of was praying about it. We'd pray into it. And I really felt led to go back and walk through systematic theology. Uh, and so that's what we're doing this year. And so we kicked it off a couple weeks ago, gave you an introduction of why theology is important. And then this week is week two of three on scripture. So if you feel like there's some things you missed or some things you want to pick up, go back and listen to last week. We have it on podcast. Uh, you can get that on the church website at stationhillchurch.com. Go to the watch or read tab, uh, scroll down, Coffeehouse Theology, uh, or you can get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, wherever you get your podcasts, it should be posted there as well. Uh, and so this is week two of three on the Bible, and we've decided to start with the Bible because it is so foundational. Um, we, you know, a lot of systematic theologies traditionally begin with the doctrine of God. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks, uh, and rightfully so. It's all about him, but as we're going to talk about tonight, we know God through his word. That's how he chose to disclose himself to us uh, through that in creation. Uh, and so really, if you don't have a solid rooting in the, the theology of 
scripture. Um, everything else, right, it becomes subjective. And so uh, tonight we want to look at that. If you'll remember, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, I quoted from a study that's done every two years now by Ligonier uh, Ministries uh, in partnership with Life Ray Research called The State of Theology in the Church. So they interview people from evangelical churches, people who say, right, they, they, you know, they go to church, love Jesus, believe in the gospel, all these things, um, and they produce the results. One of the interesting things, if you remember that I shared, is that we are at a tipping point in the church when it comes to our understanding about Scripture. 48% of those interviewed would say the Bible is 100% accurate. 48% of those interviewed said the Bible is helpful, but it's myth. Now understand, that's, that's people who would self-identify as Christians. So understand where we're at here. We're at this tipping point in our culture. And, and to that point, there's a little preacher story uh, that used to be told about a preacher who used to go make visitation. Remember the days when preachers did that, right? Uh, and even teams of people would go knock on doors and visit people in their homes. Uh, you can't even hardly do that anymore, right? Gated communities, guard dogs, right? Uh, ring doorbells. They're not gonna answer if they see a preacher at the door. Uh, but back in the day, you could. And so a preacher went out to make his rounds, making visits, uh, some new people in the church, got an address, went and knocked on the door. And you've probably all done this before. You can tell somebody's home, but they're not answering the door. And so he, he knocked, he kind of peeked in the window, right? He knocked again, he waited a few minutes and you know, having other visits to make, he decided to pull out his business card and he wrote on the back, Revelation 3.20, stuck it in the door and left. Well, the following Sunday, after the offering plate was passed, he received that business card back. Somebody had put it back in the offering plate. And so the, the deacons brought it to him after church. Scratched out was Revelation 3.20. Written there was the reference, Genesis 3.10. So, Revelation 3.20 says what? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Genesis 3.10 says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. <laughs> and I tell that little story, right? Because there was a time in our country and a time in our churches in which people would have known those references and that story would make sense. And you guys laugh because you are people, you're at church on a Wednesday night hearing about theology, like you get it. But there's a lot of people in our churches today, not just in our culture, who wouldn't understand that joke. And so our question tonight that we're trying to answer is why is the Bible important? We're gonna look at the characteristics of scripture. And there are four big ones. Now, this comes from, um, I've adapted the outline from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. A lot of other pastors have used this as well. It makes a really nice pastor acrostic called SCAN, S-C-A-N. But I don't like the order, right, that those fall in to teach them. So it's a great mnemonic device, a memory device, if you want to memorize these four characters of Scripture. But I want to start with authority because I think that that's the most important. Uh, and then we'll work from there. And so the first characteristic of the Bible that we're gonna talk about tonight is the authority of Scripture. And all of these definitions come from Grudem, uh, and so I wanna give that definition to you. The authority of Scripture means that all the works in Scripture are God's word in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disobey or disbelieve God himself. In other words, the last word we believe always goes to the word of God. That's the way that I would shorthand that, right? We need to know that the Bible claims this for itself. Many times throughout scripture, thus saith the Lord, is what you hear. 
The Bible is declaring that it has that kind of authority, right, to, to speak God's words to us. We know that throughout the Old Testament, God speaks through the prophets. And I put here on your sheet just like one reference. There are dozens that could come after this, but I do want you to see that these things are rooted in Scripture. The New Testament claims the Old Testament as authoritative, as the Word of God. And I do want us to take our Bibles and look at some of these specific Scriptures. These are two of them, these next two that are in bold. Uh, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse uh, chapter, t- uh, I'm sorry, Second ch- Timothy chapter three, and we're going to start in verse. Actually, I'm going to start in verse fourteen, uh, and we're going to look at fourteen through seventeen tonight. If you remember, Second Timothy is Paul's kind of last letter, his last lecture, if as if you will, uh, written uh, from probably the Mamertine prison in Rome uh, as he is awaiting his execution. Uh, and so he is sharing with his protege, Timothy, uh, to encourage him, to build him up in the faith, to remind him uh, that he is to guard the good deposit of the gospel uh, that has been entrusted to him. And so he says these words to him, reflecting a little bit on Timothy's foundation, but then giving us some of the most important scripture that we have about the doctrine of scripture itself. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, he says this, But as for you, speaking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. That's a good word for us. That for a lot of us in this room, there was a foundation laid. There were parents, there were grandparents, there were Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, pastors, missionaries who have poured the word of God into our lives. And one of the best things that we can hear right now is that exhortation to continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now that word sacred writings is the Greek word graphe, right? It literally means, right, the writings, like it's, it's inscribed. In other words, it's important for the doctrine of Scripture that we understand that God chose to give us his words in written form so that we could refer back to them, so that we would be able to transfer them to others, so that we would have a standard of truth uh, by which we could go back to time and time again. And of course, what Paul's referring to in the life of Timothy is the Old Testament. The New Testament, the canon, as Brian talked about last week, had not been completed at this point. Uh, but he is, is talking about the Old Testament. And these are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? That even from the Old Testament, he's saying, You should be able to connect the dots to God's promise of a Messiah to realize that those things have been fulfilled in Christ and that those scriptures can lead you to salvation. And then here is a word that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to to basically create. All scripture is breathed out by God. That word in the Greek is theonuestos. It's a combination of the word theo for God and nuestos, which is spirit. It means God breathed. So think about the image that that gives us. Literally, God breathed out his word through the authors of scripture, through the men that God inspired to write these words, so that you and I can breathe it in. Like God breathed out his word. It is alive. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. 
So scripture is breathed out for God for specific purposes, right? Our teaching, instruction, for reproof and correction when we need to be drawn back in line with his word, for training, that word in the Greek is gymnasia, where we get the English word gymnasium. In other words, you've got to work out, right? Just like you have to work out your body in order to be in shape. In the same way, you have to discipline your mind, discipline your heart for Scripture to be the first place that you go. Learn, as we're going to talk about next week, how to use the tools of biblical interpretation. We call this hermeneutics. So that we can be complete, equipped for every good work. So scripture itself, right, can give us the knowledge that we need, the truth that we need to be equipped to do what God wants us to do. Because we know James 1.22 tells us we're not just supposed to be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And so it's important for us to understand that scripture because that has, there's so much in there and we could unpack that even more. But I want you to turn over with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to look at this as well. Uh, because this helps us understand the inspiration of Scripture, how God breathed this out uh, and how he did it through human instruments, uh, through men. And so in 2 Peter uh, chapter uh, 1, verses 20 and 21, it says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that phrase carried along there is also a rare word in the original language in the Greek. And the word picture for it is that of a sail. And I love this because the idea is this, is that these human instruments, these men that God used to give us his divinely inspired word were essence men who said, I'm gonna put up the sail, right? I'm basically gonna make myself available to you. I'm gonna submit myself to your spirit, right? And then I talked about Theonuestos, right? God's breath, right? Scripture is God breathed. God's breath filled those sails and carried those men along right, as they wrote the word. It's a beautiful kind of poetic word picture in the original language there that gives us an idea of the mystery and yet we can have confidence that God's word was written down by real human agents and yet was inspired by him. And so those two scriptures are really, really important for us and foundational uh, for the theology of the inspiration of scripture. It's also important for us to know, of course, not only does the New Testament authors like Paul and Peter affirm the Old Testament as authoritative, but Jesus repeatedly quoted the Old Testament as authoritative himself. If you've been with our church for any amount of time, you know that I've repeatedly pointed out that when Jesus was in temptation in the wilderness and Satan was coming at him, you know, with those temptations to turn the stones into bread and to throw himself down off the temple and to have everything that he could see, that what Jesus refuted the enemy with was scripture, specifically from the book of Deuteronomy. And so a question that was posed to me and that I'll pose to you is, what if your ability to resist the temptations that were gonna come your way today were dependent on your memorization of the book of Deuteronomy? How would we do? All right, confession, I got some work to do. It's challenging, but that's what Jesus used. And if Jesus was willing to use scripture to refute the enemy, well, how much more do I need to know scripture? How much more do I need to be immersed in it? I wanna point out another passage, Matthew chapter 19, verses four and five. This one in particular, because this is a very relevant topic for our cultural moment that we're in. 
So many times, of course, you've heard me preach, if you've been around again out of Luke chapter 24, uh, the reality that on the Emmaus Road, uh, Jesus, as he's walking uh, with uh, Cleopas and his companion, uh, points out to them how he was the fulfillment of all things in the Old Testament concerning Scripture. Preached on that just a few weeks ago during Advent. But here in Matthew chapter 19, right, Jesus is questioned about marriage and divorce. The Pharisees are trying to trap him. If you'll remember in the first century, divorce was very different than it was today in this sense that the man could divorce, but the woman had no rights to divorce. And there were two competing schools of rabbinical thought in Jesus' day about divorce. There was basically what we would call kind of the strict constructionists that were like, you, you divorce only for something very severe and very explicit in Scripture. Then there was another school of rabbinical thought that interpreted the passage from Deuteronomy very widely that, right, you can divorce a woman for anything unpleasant. So that rabbinical school taught if your wife serves your soup cold, you can divorce her. That was literally what one of the leading rabbinical schools in the first century taught. Uh, And so they were trying to trap Jesus really with this question about divorce. And how Jesus answers is important. He says, verse 5, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So in the first part of that verse, what Jesus does is quote the book of Genesis. Now, in the book of Genesis, of course, it's not Adam speaking, it's the author speaking. So Jesus, right, again, is affirming the veracity, the authority of the Old Testament to be able to speak. But the other reason why specifically I pulled this one out is because I hear this often as a pastor today, and I hear it even not just outside of the church, but within the church, that Jesus never really spoke about marriage, that he never gave us any teaching about what biblical marriage was. For instance, Jesus never spoke against homosexuals being married. Yet here, very clearly, Jesus quotes the book of Genesis as authoritative. And so we need to recognize that and understand that. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus did indeed weigh in on the issue, and he did so in the clearest way possible. And in doing so, he referenced the Old Testament. And so Jesus himself, right, declared the Old Testament as authoritative. And there's two places in the New Testament where it affirms itself as Scripture. In other words, through the power of the Holy Spirit, even as the New Testament was being composed and pulled together into what we know as the canon, there was an acknowledgement, a reality, that what was being written at the time through the testimony of the apostles, which is one of the tests for canonicity, as we talked about last week, the reality was, was that they were aware that God was still bringing together words that would form his word to us. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, I'll start with verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. There's that idea of inspiration again. So he didn't just merely come up with it on his own, but the Holy Spirit speaking through him, the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of those matters. Uh, And then we'll talk about the next part in a minute where it says there are some things in them that are hard to understand uh, because sometimes the Bible is challenging and it admits that about itself. But the reality is, is that we can see that the Bible claims itself that it is authoritative. So we are convinced of the Bible's claims to be true as we read the Bible. 
So in the objective sense, we can read the Bible and know that it claims that it's authoritative, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But also on the subjective side, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, as we read the Bible, our ultimate conviction that the words of the Bible or God's words come when the Holy Spirit speaks in and through the words of the Bible to our heart and gives us that inner assurance that these words are the words of our Creator speaking to us. Brian referenced John chapter 10 last week, verse 27. My sheep know what? My voice. What is that voice? Is it just some voice that's floating around out there? Is it some voice in our head? Well, no, it's the voice of truth. It's the voice of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 13 and 14. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So it's important for us to remember that part of the work of the Word in our lives is, as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit would help us illuminate the text that he would help us to interpret it and to understand it properly and rightly. And so you have both an objective and a subjective sense in which those things come together. We can fall in a ditch on either side of the road, right? All head knowledge, all heart knowledge. The Bible tells us that it, the word is both. Now understand that there's a lot of other useful evidence that includes the Bible's historical accuracy, its internal consistency, the fulfillment of prophecies, its historical influence, its personal impact, and its literary beauty. All of these arguments are useful and can help remove obstacles to believing Scripture, but none of those can fully convince us itself. And we'll talk about why in just a moment. So hear me say, all of those are worthwhile pursuits, but none of those bring us all the way home in and of itself. It has to be the authority of the Word, right, and the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his incredible book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, makes that point. Uh, around Easter time, a lot of us pastors, and I do it every year, right? We use kind of some of the tools of apologetics to point out how the resurrection, the thing that seems impossible to most people, right? A person being raised from the dead has some facts associated with it historically and biblically, um, some logic that, that we can see in the way that things played out. But he points out in the book, those things are like clearing the brush, the underbrush, Again, I grew up in South Central Illinois, and there were times, right, when my mom or my dad or my grandpa who had the farm would say, son, it's time to get the shears, the weed eater, you know, it's time to go clean out that fence line. Is that fun work? No, it's hard. It's sweaty, it's backbreaking, right? But you had to, to clean out that fence line so that you could see clearly. And so a lot of times that work, right, historical accuracy, internal consistency, fulfillment of prophecy, all of that clears the underbrush so that we can clearly see God's word and be convicted that it's true. And so we need to remember that scripture itself is self-attesting. And here's what I mean by that and why I said I had to come back to that because the accusation you'll get sometimes is is that, well, if your greatest argument is, is that the scripture says it's authoritative, that's circular reasoning. Well, yes and no. And here's the reason why. If an appeal to some higher authority were to prove the Bible is God's word, then the Bible itself would not be our highest or absolute authority. The reasoning is no more circular than any other appeal to ultimate or absolute authority. And there's a little book, uh, I've bolded it in the recommended resource section called Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, If I had to pick up one book 
uh, on this subject, it would be this one. And I wanna read to you what he says about this. Uh, I'm gonna read from this in a couple of different places tonight because he just puts it so well. He says, I make no pretenses about offering you anything other than a doctrine of scripture devised from scripture itself. Now, I know this raises questions about canon. We dealt with that last week. How you know you have the right scriptures in the first place. And questions about circular reasoning. How can you reference the Bible to determine the authority of the Bible? These are reasonable questions, but they need not hold us up. Both questions have to do with, hang with me here, first principles. And a certain form of circularity is unavoidable whenever we try to defend our first principles. You can't establish the supreme authority of your supreme authority by going to some lesser authority. Yes, the logic is circular, but no more so than the secularist defending reason by reason or the scientist touting the authority of science based on science. This doesn't mean Christians can be irrational and unreasonable in their views, but it does mean that our first principle is neither rationality nor reason. We go to the Bible to learn about the Bible because to judge the Bible by any other standard would be to make the Bible less than what it claims to be. As J.I. Packer wrote more than 50 years ago, Scripture itself is alone competent to judge our doctrine of Scripture. All right, are you guys hanging with me? I know that's a lot. But I, we need to be solid on that point. Here's what you hear all of the time today. That scientists say they do what? They follow the what? Science. Okay, well, you have just made an appeal to first principle. Now, we know in fact, if you actually press them on that, are they really following the science? Debatable. Second of all, though, they're actually following what? Their interpretation of the data. In other words, a scientist placed their faith in science, right? Or scientism, if you want to go that route, right? And so for us as believers, by the same principle, right, we believe that the, God's word declares itself to be authoritative, and we take God's word for that. And the reason why that that's important is because if we stand as judge and jury over God's word, then what are we elevating over scripture? Ourselves. Do you see it? And that's what people do all of the time. And God's word itself is clear. Unless you are able to humble yourself, unless you are able to submit yourself to the word, then you can't properly interpret or understand the word of God. As we read out of 1 Corinthians, right? It's, it's foolishness to you. And so it's important that we understand this because you can't truly grasp scripture apart from a strong faith foundation. Now, I went to a small liberal arts college in Illinois. Uh, it was called Greenville College. Uh, it stands in what's known as the Wesleyan tradition. Uh, and I said, yeah, there's some Greenville College grads and fans out there. Uh, so awesome. It's now called Greenville University. It's just a little school uh, just about 40 miles east of St. Louis. And so one of the things that happened for me when I was there was I, I did have to take the required religion classes and I was able to build a pretty good relationship with some of the professors. And they're true to Wesleyan theology. They taught what's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. All right, now hang with me here. So imagine a table and their argument is is that the table, right, has four legs and in the same way our faith has four supporting elements and you rest on authority, R-E-S-T. Reason, experience, scripture, and tradition. And so they would teach us, you know, about each of those and all of the ways, you know, that God has worked through all four of those things. And I want to affirm, right, that was rich teaching. It was good for me. 
But being the Southern Baptist kid at a Wesleyan school, I started to raise my hand a whole lot, right? Because I was curious. So if you're telling me that reason and scripture are on the same plane, what you're telling me is, is that my ability to figure things out is on the same level as God's inspired word. And of course, they, you know, we go around and around in class about it. Then we get to experience a little later. And he said, you know, yeah, and so we can experience God in all these ways and his presence. And yes, hear me say, I want to experience God's presence and his fullness through the spirit. But I would say, but, but here's, here's where I'm struggling, professor, right? If, if you have a, an experience, if Ryan back there has one experience with God, but I have a different kind of experience with God, well, then who, who's right and who's wrong, right? Or whose experience is more valid than the others? And, you know, we, we go around and around again about it. And we get to the tradition thing. And I love tradition. You guys know me. I was a history teacher. I love to study what God has done in previous generations. I really do believe in a lot of ways we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before. Part of the reason I love history is because those who do not know the past are what? Doomed to repeat it. So just because, you know, I've only got 70 or 75 years to live, I don't want to make every mistake that's been made before. I want to learn. I want us to learn as a people. I love, I love tradition. But the argument is, is right, God has spoken through the traditions of the church. But I was like, but what if those traditions conflict with Scripture? What if some of those traditions are man-made, right? And so basically, me and the professor had a little meeting in his office one day where he had to kind of say, hey, you know what, Let, let's you and I get coffee and talk about these things. And so I ended up having a great relationship with the guy. He still calls me right, to this day, right? He's like, hey, is my token Southern Baptist student, what's going on, you know, uh, kind of thing. And it's a lot of fun. But my, here's my point in saying that. I, I appreciate that model. And, and I think that reason God gave us great minds and we should use the ability that he gave us to its fullest potential. We should develop our minds for God. We should use every rational capacity we have. But I do not think that my ability to reason is on par with God's divine revelation. I love experience. I love the moments of worship, right, in which God moves us. I love the places I've gone in the world and I've clearly seen God's hand at work. I love to, in my quiet time, right, sense the nearness of God there. I love all of those things. But my feelings in a moment, my emotions and experiences cannot be on par with Scripture because you know what? Sometimes I don't feel it. There's a lot of days, right? It's like that workout I was talking about a minute ago. I know that I need to dig in the Word, not because I feel like it, but because I know it's God's truth for me and I need to hear it whether or not I want to. On and on I could go, right? Run with that example. But the reality is, is that experience is subjective. And so experience has to be filtered through the lens of scripture. And then tradition, again, traditions are certainly important. Uh, traditions have been handed down to us. A lot of generations before us, right, have fought battles for a lot of things that matter in the church and uh, in our lives. But the reality is, is that traditions are still susceptible to being twisted and manipulated by mankind, if not held to the standard of scripture. And so reason, experience, and tradition are good things, but they are servants of scripture. They have to be filtered through scripture. And that's really important. Grudem says this in his systematic theology. We must continually remember that we have in the Bible God's very words. And we must not try to improve on them in some way for this cannot be done. Rather, we should seek to understand them and then to trust them and obey them with our whole heart. And so we can't improve on God's word, right? It is the standard for us. As a matter of fact, in my study this week, it was led to John 17, 17. 
And this was interesting. I've read this verse a hundred times. I'd never really thought about this before. Jesus says, and this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, right? This is his high priestly prayer, right? To God as his disciples are in the room hearing him pray. And he says, your word is truth. He doesn't merely say your word is true. It is that, right? Jesus declares it to be so, but he makes it a noun. Your word is truth. It is alive, it is living. And as we've talked about so many times, right? Jesus is the embodiment. He is the word made flesh. That's John 1, 14. So I love that. And I love what J.I. Packer has to say uh, in his book. He wrote a book, if there was a second book I would read, if you really wanna nerd out and get into the battle for the Bible, so to speak, he wrote a book in the 1950s uh, called Fundamentalism and the Word of God. And it is probably the best read if you want to know where all of the kind of current debates about all of this have gone. And so I love what Packer says in this passage. He says, uh, God then does not profess to answer in scripture all the questions that we in our boundless curiosity would like to ask about scripture. He tells us merely as much as he sees we need to know as a basis for our life of faith. And he leaves, some unresolved, he leaves unresolved some of the problems raised by what he tells us in order to teach us a humble trust in his veracity. This question, therefore, the question, therefore, that we must ask ourselves when faced with these puzzles is not, is it reasonable to imagine that this is so, but is it reasonable to accept God's assurance that this is so? Is it reasonable to take God's word and believe that he has spoken the truth, even though I fully can't comprehend what he has said? The question carries its own answer. We should not abandon faith in anything God has taught us merely because we cannot solve all the problems which it raises. Our own intellectual competence is not the test and measure of divine truth. It is not for us to stop believing because we lack understanding, but to believe in order that we may understand. That's powerful, right? I think he articulates it really, really well. And so for us, we need to acknowledge the authority of God's word. That for us is where we begin, which is really a posture of humility. Because the reality is, is we all are tempted to be God's. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge. We want, to want, we want authority in our lives. As I shared with you a couple Sunday mornings ago, we have a five-year-old in our house right now, Skylar, and she's sweet and she's starting to ask all those questions, right? And she wants to know who the boss is in any given situation, you know? And so, you know, we're trying to teach her right, how these things work, you know? And so we, but she clearly wants to know if, if we're out of the house and of course, uh, you know, who, who's, who's the boss, right? So mommy and daddy, if you're gone, then who's the boss? Well, it's grandma, right? Well, if grandma's gone, then who's the boss? Well, it's your oldest sister who's babysitting, you know? That line has to be clear. In the similar way, there's a five-year-old in inside of all of us that needs to know who's in charge, we need to know whose word is ultimate. Our temptation as we get older is to make our word ultimate. But the reality is, is we know there's something inside us that knows we don't have all the answers for everything. And that's why the doctrine of the authority of scripture is so important. And I also believe it's why it's been under attack so voraciously, not just from outside the church, but interestingly enough, from inside the church. My systematic theology professor, Kenneth Keithley, I went to New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary for my, my Master of Divinity. He is now at Southeastern Theological Seminary. Wrote a book with the former president of Lifeway. His name was Jimmy Draper on biblical authority. Uh, and they say this in the opening chapter. There are people among us today teaching in our academic institutions, laboring in our denominations, pastoring our churches, who have not departed all that far from classic biblical doctrine. They still believe that Jesus is God. 
They still believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. They still believe in the virgin birth. But they do not believe that everything in Scripture is necessarily accurate and without error. They have started over the edge. And if you trace all of the controversies in the church, if you trace a lot of the issues that we're seeing in the evangelical church, especially in America, it comes to a denial of the authority of Scripture. Because once you allow that wall to come down, right, then it's simply a slope into everything else. Once you say that the Bible is not the inspired and errant word of God, right, but it's subject to error, uh, all of these things, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, then you end up on this runaway train of, well, then who has the ultimate authority over anything if we can't truly know and trust the word of God? And I don't want to bore you with Southern Baptist history, uh, but what this book recounts, and again, it's listed there in your recommended resources, is basically what happened in the Southern Baptist Convention, which in history so far is the only denomination that has not gone more liberal over time because in the late 70s and 1980s, it was decided, right, there was a movement to say, whoa, 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 we can't go there. And we need to pull back and be sure that what's being taught in our seminaries and our churches is the inerrancy and the inspiration of the word of God. Now, do not hear me say that the Southern Baptist Convention is perfect or that we have it all figured out. If you've read the news, the headlines, if you're on social media at all, you will have a clear picture of that. But in, in that one area, that battle was fought. Uh, and so it has been interesting to see how that gap and that divide has only increased between the denominations and traditions, right, that have begun to disperse, right, throw dispersion on the authority of the Word of God and those that have not. So let's talk about this critical issue because it's related to the authority of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. The Bible always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. This is Excuse me, this definition does not mean that the Bible tells us every fact there is to know about any one subject, but it affirms that what it does say is true. So it's important to note that when we talk about inerrancy, right, it allows for the use of ordinary language. So if the Bible says there were 8,000 men in battle, there could have been 7,999, right? If any of us were there that day bearing eyewitness testimony, we'd say there were 8,000 people there. Right? So it allows for that, of course. The use of free quotations. So sometimes when a New Testament author quotes the Old Testament, they quote a paraphrase or they quote from the Greek translation of the New Testament that's known as the Septuagint, those kind of things. It allows for that. And it acknowledges that there's unusual grammatical constructions in Scripture. And so basically all of these caveats and all these things that people like to nitpick when it comes to the doctrine of inerrancy, note that they don't affect any major doctrine of Scripture. But if you think about it, denying the doctrine of inerrancy creates serious moral issues. Translation, if we can look at any part of the scripture and say, oh, you know, it's a minor detail, but it's wrong. Well, does God therefore lie in small matters so that we can as well? That's the equivalent of a theological white lie. Is, is God prone to do that? No, it's not consistent with his character and what we know of him. Then, of course, the bigger question, can we really trust anything that the Bible says? If it's not accurate in this sense, then can we really trust it in any area? And then, of course, as I mentioned already, the, the question we have to ask is, what well, are we trying to elevate our minds to a higher standard than God's word itself? Kevin Young says, inerrancy means that the word of God always stands over us, and we never stand over the word of God. When we reject inerrancy, we put ourselves in judgment over God's word. 
Now, let me be clear about this, right? This does not mean that we worship a book. It doesn't mean that we have made the Bible into an idol. But what it does mean is, is that we hold to what we would call a historically high view of the authority and the inspiration of the word of God because it's how God has chosen to reveal his truth to us, his people. And so if you think about it, I've shared this with you before, it's very similar to the process that we see take place with the gospel message itself. Often, in times, right, the gospel is proclaimed, it's declared, but then in the next generation, it is what? It is assumed. And so when we begin to assume people, yeah, well, we believe the Bible. We go to a church with, you know, Baptist or Bible or, you know, whatever in the name, or we go to a non-denominational church. My joke is all non-denominational churches are really Baptist churches with a cool website. That's just, that's how you know it's a non-denom church, right? So, because theologically, they're almost all, all Baptist if you look at their, their theology and their doctrine. So, you know, if it becomes assumed, then the next step is that it becomes confused, and so we've seen a lot of that. And there's lots of root issues why. We'll explore some of those in a moment as well. But then in that next step, the gospel's lost. And in the same way, when it comes to the authority of the Bible, there's been a lot of people who assumed it, but then all of a sudden, different teachings creep in. They begin to have doubts and concerns about the accuracy of the Bible. They read different things on the internet. They hear friends from progressive backgrounds who say different things. And then pretty soon, that slippery slope, right? Their understanding of the authority and the nature of God's word is lost. So we wanna hold to a high view of scripture because first and foremost, Jesus himself held to a very high view of scripture. Second, of course, because the scripture declares that about itself. So that is the authority of scripture. We got one down. We got three to go. Flip your page over on the backside if you're looking at the handout. Let's talk about the clarity of scripture. By the way, each of these four points that grew to make also addresses a particular challenge to scripture. The challenge in authority is the challenge from liberals. It started with German liberal theology, uh, right? That crept into most churches in the 1900s and has disseminated from there. Uh, so you're liberal scholars, right? That's where it comes from. The challenge with the clarity of scripture is what we would call the postmodern problem. Can we be clear about anything anymore? Do words even have meaning? Does the meaning lie with the person who wrote them or with the person who's hearing them? Right, that's postmodernism. And so that's the challenge that you're up against here. Uh, you guys have heard me quote before C.S. Lewis is famous Jesus has to be either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Postmoderns would add a fourth legend. That's the mythology view, right? That, that really what this is, is legend. And it's useful, it's helpful, it's instructive, right? But it's not authoritative. So we need to understand the clarity of scripture. The definition, it asserts that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help and who are willing to follow it. The Bible frequently affirms its own clarity. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Because as Brian Ball will tell you, all things come back to Deuteronomy. It's his favorite book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you wanna turn there, verses 11 through 14, say this. 
This is by the, remember by the way, this is what I call Moses' greatest hits. This is his final collection of sermons that he is called to preach to God's people before they enter the promised land. He said these words to God's people before in some way, shape, or form, but now he's kind of put them into this final sermon. And so he's telling them to choose between life and death. He says this in verse 11 of Deuteronomy 30. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. In a very Moses way, right? He paints that picture for us to say, It's challenging to obey God's word. But the reality is, is you can understand it and you can do it by his strength and by his power. It's interesting to me that in Matthew chapter nine, Jesus talking to the Pharisees who were experts in the Bible. I mean, these guys would put me as a pastor to shame about their knowledge of the Old Testament, their memorization, their handle on it. And Jesus several times looked at them like in Matthew 9, 13 and said, now go and learn what this means. And then he would quote an Old Testament passage. Translation, okay, you need to go back into your homework. You need to go back, right? And you need to study this again. It's interesting to me that Jesus never responds to any question with any, even a hint that the Old Testament scripture is not clear. When he's asked and put on the spot, right, and he's dialoguing with the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law, he never once says, well, you know, you know, the Old Testament says this, but... He never goes down that road. He always quotes the Old Testament as authoritative. So one of the things that's fascinating to me about a lot of people who are progressive or who are moving away from Orthodox Christian faith is this idea that they love Jesus. They love everything about him. They love his teachings. They have red letter Bibles. Don't get me started about red letter Bibles, people. Okay? But they don't honor the scriptures that Jesus honored. Because he honored the Bible, the Old Testament, as God's word. And you can't miss that in any section of the Gospels. It's astounding to me that they pick and choose, right? What parts of Jesus they like and which parts they don't like. Reading and understanding scripture should also not be carried out in isolation from other believers. Look around. God has given us each other. And part of the way that we stay away from heresy is is that we are accountable to one another. Remember that most of the New Testament letters were circular letters. They were read aloud to the churches. If you'll remember in Acts 2, the church met daily in the temple courts to listen to the apostles' teaching. They gathered together. So anytime somebody goes off into the woods with a Bible, right, and comes back and says, I've got a new word from the Lord, As a church, we need to say, okay, well, is it consistent with what the Bible teaches? Versus, I've got this crazy harebrained idea out here that I'm gonna roll with. It's important for us to understand that that happens best in biblical community. And so the ability to understand scripture is more moral and spiritual than just merely intellectual. I've already said, God wants us to use our minds, right? I've already quoted from 1 Corinthians 2. And it's interesting to me that in Genesis chapter three, Satan's oldest and most often used tactic to undermine confidence in the word is right there as he says to Eve, 
Did God really say? And I believe to this day, that's what Satan goes around and whispers in people's ears. Did God really say? So clever, right? Just, just undermining subtly. Is that really what God meant? Did he really write those words? Do you really think that you understand that properly? And so the Bible's honest. We misunderstand scripture due to a lack of faith, a hardness of heart. That's what Jesus calls the guys out on the Emmaus Road about. Spiritual immaturity, that's in Acts 15, or a refusal to humbly affirm its authority, James 1.22. The reason we disagree about parts of scripture, and this happens often in the church, right? There's always doctrines being debated, those kind of things. It's not the problem of scripture itself. The problem is us. So proper hermeneutics, that's good principles and tools of interpretation, and sound exegesis, that's doing the interpreting of Scripture, done in biblical community where there's accountability, is the best remedy. We're going to talk about hermeneutics and exegesis next week. But let me give you a quick example of what I mean. In the life of this congregation, there happened to be about 30 former pastors, career missionaries, ministers, Don't think for one second that I'm always comfortable up here, right, preaching and teaching God's word because I know if I miss something, the emails will come. (laughs) This Sunday, I was teaching about the passage uh, in John chapter chapter two about uh, the wedding at Cana and I showed a picture of stone pots. Now, if you've been with us in Coffeehouse Theology, you will know that one of the top archeologists in the world happens to go to this church. And very graciously, he came up to me after church and said, yeah, that picture, I'm going to send you a file. So I now have a six-page document, right, of actual stone pots in Israel, which I love. Dr. Ortiz is super grateful, super humble. And here's the thing I'd say about all our pastors and leaders. They're fantastic. But it is true, okay, that I, I know as a pastor, if I, for whatever reason, step out of lines, God has put a ton of accountability in this church for me. Um, And it's fascinating, though, and I appreciate that. There's a lady who's a Bible teacher in our church. I respect her dearly. Let me give you another quick example, Um, and we'll get to this in a couple weeks in our sermon series on John 2, but the story of the woman at the well. I had done what many other preachers have done over time, right? That woman had been married and divorced how many times? Anybody remember? Five. Yeah, okay, I think I held my hand up. I gave it away, didn't I? So that was actually just a gesture, and I was signaling, right? So five times. So like many other pastors, I had preached that in the past as like this woman, right? Just, man, just getting married and divorced at her will, just, you know, man-eater, you know, all of these things. And what did I tell you earlier about divorce? I didn't realize when I was a younger preacher, right? I didn't know that biblical background, that women could not divorce, what one of our members of our congregation pointed out very graciously, gracious, graciously to me years ago was the fact that, first of all, right, Jesus is not saying that it's good that she's been married and divorced. But also, if you read Deuteronomy, it says, a man may divorce a woman for something unpleasant. If she's been married and divorced five times, that means there is something unpleasant about her that may only be revealed after she's married to someone. In other words, there's a point of deep wounding and pain in this woman's life by which five times she's been committed to a man. Five times he has found her unworthy, unpleasant. Again, I don't wanna go conjecture, right? But there's practical reasons we can all think about this. And a man has rejected her and sent her away in shame. And so do you know what that did for my understanding of that passage? It increased my compassion for that woman to properly understand it and to see it 
in those terms. Terms that are what? Based on the teaching of scripture itself, not on my 21st century interpretation of women who get married, right, and divorced a whole bunch of times. And so those kind of things, right, as a pastor in biblical community, we can teach and share those things with one another. Things that God has taught me, I get to bring to you, and things that God has taught you, you get to bring to me. And in doing so, that deepens and enriches our understanding of the world, and it helps keep us out of the ditches of theological error. And so what a gift we are to one another as we get to learn and study God's word together. The Bible is honest. Some parts of the Bible are more difficult to understand than others. I read that passage, which is, it's kind of humorous to me, thinking about Peter and Paul and some of their interactions. But Peter says, talking about Paul, he wrote to you according to the wisdom given to you as he does in all his letters when he speaks in the, in, in, of these matters. He says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. How about Peter, right? Saying, Paul, sometimes I don't get that dude, right? Like some of these things are hard to understand. But here's what he goes on to say, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So even if something's difficult to understand, what we should do is lean in and press in to understand it, not merely try to twist it or manipulate it or oversimplify it, right, and move on. And so I love that. I love that idea because that's one of the things that I've learned over time that right when you lean into things that at first don't seem to make sense, it's as if God has put that stuff in his word to say, hey, come a little deeper. Hey, hey, dig a little harder, right? We've all had that difficult class or exam we've had to pass for something, right? And you have to press into it. You have to really apply your mind and your heart. You have to work on it. And when you get it, when it clicks, what do you have? That sense of, yeah, right? God does that. He teaches us to, to go, come to deeper and deeper waters in his word. I've used the illustration before of the ocean, that there are some people who just go to the ocean and they take a look at it, they take their picture, they stick their feet in the sand, superficial, right? It's good, they move on. Other people, they put on their swim trunks and they go out there and they wait around, they get a boogie board, they swim around, and they have a great experience. But there are those people who learn how to scuba dive, and they have specialized training and they learn how to use the gears and they learn how to breathe and all the things and they dive down and they see things that most people never see. I wanna be that kind of student of God's word, all right? I wanna learn the tools to be able to dive down to see the things that he's put there for us to be able to see. And really that's what I try to do as I labor in the word week by week, to dive deep so I can come back and show you guys on Sunday and get you excited about this so that you can go back and dig some more. So we need to lean into those hard passages. I love what Grudem says. He says, this truth, the clarity of scripture, should give us great encouragement to read our Bibles daily with great eagerness. Christians must never give up to the scholarly experts the task of interpreting scripture. They must keep doing it every day for themselves. It's beautiful, right? Because what happens? We get lazy. We just don't wanna do the work. So we settle for the three-minute devotional, right? We settle for the podcast. We, again, nothing wrong with those things, but they don't replace digging into God's word. Not only that, a lot of times, like we outsource everything else in our lives. Well, I'm gonna outsource to the pastor, right? My, my daily Bible or my weekly Bible intake. Guess what? I cannot feed you in 30 minutes a week. If you only ate one meal a week, right, over the course of 30, 30 minutes, guess what would happen? You would be anemic. You would be weak, you would be starving. And the same thing happens to so many of us who rely on a Bible teacher or a preacher or somebody else to deliver us God's word. 
We do that, again, to point you to the truth, to equip you and build you up, to inspire and encourage you to go back and dig for yourselves. But we can't do all of that heavy lifting. Not only that, it's dangerous when you leave it to experts. So I told you a couple of weeks ago, think about it. The New Testament was written in jail cells. It was written on the mission field. It was written in the midst of suffering. Where do most theologians operate today? In ivory towers, in publications, right? Trying to get published or trying to get a book deal. Far different, far different place. And so God's people handling, working through, interpreting the word, right? Keeps the word real, keeps it grounded in everyday lives. Yes, we need the people who labor in the word, the scholars who help us see some of those deeper truths. But the reality is, is I only listen to the scholars who are members of a local church, by the way, because they need to be connected to biblical community as well. All right, the clarity of scripture. All right, we got two more to go. And I know you guys are like, it's 7.30 already. Okay, here we go. The next two are, because they all build on each other, uh, will flow a little quicker. The necessity of scripture is our next characteristic. It means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. The Bible is necessary for knowledge of the gospel. Romans chapter 10. Paul could not state it any more clearly than this. How then will they call on him in whom they have had not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And because feet are an exceedingly ugly part of the Bible, right? I think it's awesome that God can make them beautiful. And so it's a reminder to us that the Bible is necessary for that. John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Acts 4, 12, there is no other name under heaven by which men are saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, there is one God and one mediator, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, if you wanna ask the question, what about Old Testament believers? They had saving faith in Christ. They didn't know all of the details of when he would come and, and, and what his life and ministry would involve, but because they trusted in the promise of, of God, they looked forward because they could trust the reliability of God's promise that a Messiah and a Redeemer would come. That's in John 8 and Hebrews 11. So we know that the Bible is necessary for knowledge of the gospel. It's necessary for spiritual growth. It's necessary for certain knowledge of God's will, that the good life is based on the God life. As a matter of fact, John 6, the passage we're gonna be in this Sunday, the disciples, right, come to Jesus and after the whole scene about the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus starts to teach and a bunch of people desert and leave. I love this exchange where Jesus looks at the disciples and he's like, you guys, are you guys out too, right? And what, how do they respond? To whom else would we go? Because only you have the words of eternal life. You see, they know the things of Jesus may be hard. That's why the crowd, so many deserted, right? Some of his teachings may be challenging. And to be sure, especially for them, that was pre-crucifixion and resurrection, right? But they've already recognized that Jesus has the words that bring life. So we know that there's two general ways that God reveals himself, right? Through general revelation. That's the reality that people can know that God exists and they can discern some of his attributes in the created world. And this includes, by the way, the moral law. You'll remember in, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote a whole section called The Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe, or as I like to call it, right, theology according to a two-year-old. That's not fair, okay? That is one of the clues 
as to the existence of God, that inside of everyone there is some kind of a moral compass. And I love the day that a guy was arguing with me about this and he had his wallet sitting out on the table across from me at coffee. I grabbed that wallet and I put it in my pocket and he said, what are you doing, bro? I said, you just told me there's no moral law. I'm bigger than you. I'm taking your wallet. That's not right. You just proved my point, right? There's a sense of moral law that God's imprinted on the human heart. And thank goodness he did because this world is bad enough, right? And that little bit of restraint that comes from that makes a big difference. However, that general revelation can point us in the right direction, but like the signs I was talking about in my sermon Sunday, it can't get us all the way home. It takes the special revelation of scripture as the only sure foundation for saving faith. I wanna point this out again. Kevin DeYoung says this, Scripture doesn't tell us everything we may want to know about everything, but it tells us everything we need to know about the most important things. It gives us something the internet with all of its terabytes of information never could, wisdom. The purpose of Holy Scripture is not ultimately to make you smart or make you relevant or make you rich or get you a job or get you married or take all your problems away or tell you where to live. The aim is that you might be wise enough to put your faith in Christ and be saved. Nothing else in this world has that ability. The word of the president's important. The words of your parents is to be honored. The word of your spouse is to be treasured, but only the word of God can save. It's necessary, and that's why God has given it to us. Then, the sufficiency of scripture. This is our fourth and final characteristic. This means that scripture contains all the words of God that he intended for his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains the words of God that we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly. So the good news for you and I is this, is that we can focus our search for God's word on the Bible alone. We can be confident that scripture makes it possible to find answers to our questions. Second Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness. So what we really need to know, right, we can discover, we can be confident that scripture makes it possible for us to find answers to our questions. The Bible is enough. Man cannot add to God's word or take away from God's word. That's important for us to remember. There are different cults that will try to tell you, yeah, we believe in the Bible, but you gotta believe in this book as well. Or you gotta read these words, or you gotta listen to this guy as well. There is people out there in some of the new charismatic movements who will argue that they have, quote, a word from the Lord. Well, that's why we have the Protestant doctrine of the sola scriptura. No modern revelations, ecstatic experiences, additional writings, or traditions in the church are to be placed on a level equal with scripture and authority. Nothing is sin that the Bible does not say is sin. Nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture. So remember that. So if somebody comes around, a preacher, a TV preacher, whoever, right, and says, I have a special revelation from the Lord and you should do this or you shouldn't do that or this is wrong or this is right, you say to them, show me in the Bible where that's true. Show me in God's word where that's true because that's the standard of truth for us as followers of Jesus. Again, Kevin DeYoung talks about this in his book, 
Uh, you should just read his book, really, is what it comes down to. But he says this, if the authority is the liberal problem, clarity is the postmodern problem, necessity the problem for atheists and agnostics, then sufficiency is the attribute most quickly doubted by rank-and-file church-going Christians. Listen to this. We can say all the right things about the Bible and even read it regularly, but when life gets difficult or just a bit boring, we look for new words, new revelation, new experiences to bring us closer to God. We feel, for example, rather ho-hum about the New Testament's description of heaven, but we are mesmerized by the accounts of school-aged children who claim to have gone there and back. From magazine articles about my conversation with God to best-selling books where God is depicted as giving special private communications, we can easily operate as if the Bible were not enough. If only we could have something more than the scriptures, then we'd be really close to Jesus and know his love for us. Do you see the problem with that? Do you see why that's a dangerous road to walk down? So we need to be careful, right, about what we're filling our minds and our hearts with because God's word is sufficient. So let me give you three quick words for application and then we're gonna take questions, all right? Number one, build confidence. This isn't on there, you may wanna write it down, jot it on your phone, whatever. Number one, build confidence by actually handling the word of God. We just spent an hour, right, unpacking these incredible characteristics of the word of God, but it's all for naught if tomorrow morning you don't actually get up and read the Bible. My point is, is the more that you handle the Bible, the more you take your questions and apply them to scripture first, the more you begin to see, right, how this is God's word to us, the Holy Spirit works through it in your life so that what you're dealing with converges with the truth of that scripture at God's right time for you. Number two, you go to scripture first with your questions, with your issues, when you are seeking truth. I love my mama, she's a godly lady, I love to talk to her about God's word, right? But if I have a hard question, my job is not to pick up my phone and call my mom, right? My job is to go to God's word. And then I love to call my mom, right? And say, hey mom, this is so cool, you know? My job, right, is not to go call a friend or go search social media articles or Google it. My job is to go to scriptures first. When we learn and discipline ourselves to do that as God's people, we begin to exercise those muscles and we begin to build that confidence that God's word is what it says that it is. And then number three, we need to push back against those who have a low view of scripture, right? Humbly, gently, right? Firmly, if need be, okay? Truth and love, that's where I need to go with that, right? But there are those people who are even in our churches today who'll say, the Bible says, yeah, but, nope, The Bible says, Jesus believed that this was God's word and so we need to as well. And next week we're gonna get into interpretation and all those things. I've listed recommended resources if you want to dig a little deeper into these issues that are there. But I knew this was gonna be a lot tonight, like drinking from a fire hose, but man, these four are so important. So I pray uh, that you learn these characteristics of scripture, right? Scan, the sufficiency, clarity, authority, necessity of God's word. Those are the characteristics of his word, and that, I pray, increases your confidence in his truth. All right, Brian, you wanna join me? We got some questions? We do. All right. Yeah, we've got a, got a couple on here, a couple of comments. One, you should debate Bill Nye. Who? Yes, the science guy. The science guy. He's actually an engineer. Is he? Yeah, he was a I think I saw an article about guy. that. 
I watched him on local comedy in Seattle. There is one, somebody debated him. I forget. It was a Ken Ham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. not too I remember that was a big deal a few years ago. And the other Heather I'll Heather leave it to Ken Ham. Yeah, and Heather observed that acnes is not quite as good in an acronym, right? Authority, clarity, necessity, and <laughs> scripture. So I thought it was a good observation. From somebody who teaches high schoolers, yeah, right? Exactly. Yes. Um, they wanted they wanted the most popular one was they wanted your thoughts on the red letter Bible. Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah. I'll stand over here and duck. Yeah, that's fine. So I'm not a fan, the- okay? What did we just spent the whole time talking about? That all of the canon, all of Scripture is authoritative. So the temptation with the red-letter Bible is to somehow say that these direct quotations for Jesus are more important or more authoritative. Jesus himself would not declare that. As we talked about last week, we talked about the nature of Scripture. John chapter 1 teaches us, right, that he is the author of it all. Okay, that he is the word made flesh. Uh, and so it's just, it's one of those things, it's just a, a bit of a theological, like I know why people do it. Uh, it sells Bibles is the real reason why. You do understand that. You know why there's so many different Bibles every year? Between 30 and 60 million Bibles are sold every year. It is still the best selling book. And so Bible publishers know this. So it's why you end up with like the, you know, study Bible from this preacher, the study Bible from this athlete, the study Bible from, you know, this cartoon character, all of those things, you know, because the reality is, is they're, they're trying to find ways. And years ago, they figured out that that was a way to sell more Bibles, uh, was to do the red letter editions. So do not hear me say, I don't honor the words of Jesus, okay? <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. My point is, is all scripture is authoritative uh, and Jesus taught us that it was. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah, they, they're, most people are just buying a new Bible hoping it says something different this time. Right, right. But anyway, it says, so it says, next question, this is a fantastic question. How do we define what scripture is sufficient for? Are there limits? If so, how do we define those limits? Well, Scripture is sufficient for everything that, that God wanted us to know, and it's sufficient for anything that we need. Next week, we'll talk about interpretation, including the challenges of interpretation, right, to be sure that we rightly handle and apply that Scripture to two different and various situations that are, that are in our lives. Brian, what, anything that you would add to that? That's, that's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't have you drive on the right side of the road. Right, there's, there's logic things that, it, that it's, it wouldn't be when you get to philoso- out to right. philosophical extensions. But what it is is sufficient for saving grace. It's sufficient so that what you know, will, will, you can put your faith in Christ and be saved. Right. And then once you're saved, you lead your life according to those principles right. that are in word. And that's the, it's sufficient. I guess yeah. my term is it's sufficient for life. Yeah. Right? Je- Jesus, right, well, John, right, told us even in his gospel I could not write all of the stories about Jesus or it would fill all the volumes in the world. There's no way God could tell us everything about everything. So to your point about driving on the wrong side of the road, right? The Bible says many times, do not be foolish. I believe driving on the wrong side of the road would be foolish and thus fit that category. So he does trust us, right? He created us in his image to be able to take his truth and apply it in a variety of situations. Obey all human authority. Yes. Right, the law says to drive on the right side of the road. And so there's, that's there's, and, right. And so those are the those are the general principles that, like, once you've got that saving faith and understand the grace that yeah. Scripture has. Brian's going to give us a theology next week of driving on the right side of the road as you go I, through the whole Scripture I, and point I will. out the we'll, passages. We will go through De- mostly Deuteronomy. <laughs> I bet you could do it. Too. I bet I could. Oh man, that's sad. And then we'll go to England, and then we're all messed up. Oh yeah, well Ben's over there, so there's no telling what kind of confusion's going on in his life. Um, so it's sufficiency like the wise rich man in Lazarus, nothing more than is needed, uh, nothing more special is needed than the word. Um, 
which said about people living, uh, looking for new words outside the Bible, reminds me of people asking for a sign, right from Jesus' day and the feeding of 5,000 in John 6. Mm-hmm. Uh, why not choose the Book of Mormon or the Koran as your first principle? Why the Bible? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we've, we're disciples of Jesus, so we're going to follow what he followed, right, which, right. Was, which was the scripture. Um, but I believe, obviously, if you walked down those truth claims, competing truth claims, that I believe that Christianity, right, is the most congruent right. with what reality is and gives the best explanation, for instance, for the problem of evil in the world. Right. Well, and my best friend growing up was Mormon. And, uh, my, Same. and so I went to Mormon summer. I, I still can't believe my parents did this. They sent me off to Mormon summer camp. So I was off with the Mormons for 10 weeks. That's pretty exciting. They let me go. They do a theology class with their teenagers from 5.30 to 6.30 every morning for all of their high school students, Monday through Friday, all four years you're in high school. I went to that. By the third year, the bishop from Nashville was driving to Tullahoma to teach the class because I was converting people to Christianity. Because I would ask questions. And so I guess my point on the book, I'm not an expert in the Koran by any means. I've, I've, read the, I've read the Book of Mormon. I've read the Pearl of Great Price. I have all those books. If you, com- if you believe the Bible is true, you can't believe those books are true. Good word. Right? If you believe the Bible is true, so one or the other has to be true. And so there's no way those things are congruent. My suspicion, again, I am not, Micah is studying Arabic and the Quran, and, and so he would be, my youngest son would be a better authority on that. But my guess is those two books aren't congruent either. And so you're going to have to pick one to be true. And as you said, when you look at, when you compare real life to what God says real life is, that, that's, the on, that's the only thing that's true. I mean, there's just there's just nothing there's just nothing else. Does that make sense? Is that good? Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Does adherent, does adherent to something like the Wesleyan quadrilateral that weakens the authority of Scripture risk his or her salvation? If you're trusting in anything other than Jesus to save, then you're yes. You're done. Right. Now, if, yes. you, if you have a misunderstanding of the level that experience and scripture and those kind of play, if you have faith in Jesus, you're still saved. You're just confused. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, it, let's, let's give an extrapolation of that. Like, that's just a, a framework for us to understand how people understand authority. But if you believe in the tradition of your faith to save you, right. in other words, I was that's born a Baptist, right? I literally was. They used to have this thing called a cradle roll. So I was enrolled in Sunday school before I was even born in, in a Southern Baptist church. So if I just assumed, hey, I've been, my name's been on the church roll, which, by the way, many people do, yeah. so I'm in, right? right. Then that, that's, I'm believing in tradition to save me instead of Jesus. Exactly. So you can take each of those, right, reason and experience and do the same thing with them as concepts. The Wesleyan quadrilateral is just a way of understanding different sources of authority. And this truth, I don't know that I mentioned this, Everybody believes in one of those, by the way. Everyone bases their life on some kind of authority or some combination of authorities. And so you have to choose, you know. And for me, that, that choice is, is scripture. Right. I'm right there with you. Right there with you. Um, let's see. On the red letter Bible, Muslims tend to study only the red letters of the Bible and say they trust in the words of Jesus. The red letters present a difference. That's... And again, I am not an authority on Islam. I'm not either, but I do know they, they honor Jesus as a prophet. Right. But they believe it's blasphemy from what I understand to believe he is the God. son of God. Right. And they believe, and they believe we, we, we have a plurality of gods, mm-hmm. that, we, that the Trinity is not one God, but three gods. And so we're polytheistic. Right. Um, 
yeah, that's always a, that's always a fun conversation. Uh, the divine powers granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who calls us His own, uh, His own glory and excellence. I agree with that. Amen. Um, let's see, that's more pop, more pop culture. Uh, yeah, seeking Allah, finding Jesus is a fantastic is a fantastic uh, book. Yes, there are several great experts out there, yeah. especially people who have been converted from Islam. Um, and I don't know those off the top of my head, but we could point you in the right direction there. How do you reconcile between what we call the Bible, holy and true, and what happened at the Council of Nices, I guess Nia, oh, Nicaea, Nicaea uh, where books, letters were included and excluded? That's what we went through, actually. Go back to our podcast from last week. Yep. I went through all that. Um, and, we, and we taught yeah. kind of how, how the Bible was assembled. Yeah. That, it, that it looked it, yeah, no, just, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the, the short version is, right, the councils didn't decide anything. The councils affirmed what the churches had already practiced, right. and that's that there was a universal acceptance of what books would be in the canon. So one of the great myths that gets propagated all over the place by liberal scholars, by television movies, by bad novels, is the idea that a bunch of guys sat in a room and decided what books are in the Bible and which ones weren't. Right, it was Bible Book Survivor. Right? <laughs> yes, they voting, you know, they voted yeah, Thomas vote off, off the island. Right, they voted That's Thomas right. off the island. It's very right. sad. That's right. Um, but That's this was, a, by the way, this was a fantastic teaching. This is Praise an unbelievably God. difficult thing to teach, and that was done magnificently. Next right. week is fun. So we yeah. get to get into hermeneutics and application, and I get to teach you guys what I've been able to share with pastors all over the world. So um, it's uh, Bible training, and it's, uh, it's so anyway, it's, it's, it's fun because now we get to get into the application. But don't forget what I said, right? All of this is for naught. If you don't get up tomorrow, open up your Bible, read it, apply it to your life, search it, right? Because in it is the words that give us life. Amen. And that life is in Jesus. Choose life, right? Mm -hmm. Amen. Rises. Good. Choose life. All right, let's pray and, and pray in the world. Father God, we're thankful. Man, are we thankful. Uh, thankful for your grace, thankful for your son that saves us, thankful for your word, thankful for the authority, right, and the sufficiency that it, that it can bring us to saving faith, Father, that Christ Jesus would come and save us, that would die on a cross, be raised on the third day so that we can be with you forever. And we are, we are forever grateful, Father, and unspeakably thankful. Uh, let, let this word change us. Let our understanding of, of, of the Bible motivate us, Father, to a closer relationship with you and to look more like Christ, Father, as we study your word. And so don't leave us unchanged. Uh, uh, let us be different people that walk out than came in. And it's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.